Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be advised that this podcast contains the names of deceased people. G'day. Yeah, sorry I'm late. I was just um, finishing off that bloody series you told me about. The Deceived? Yeah, stick with it. Episode 58. <laughs> season, season 58, 29. episode two. It's great. Um, it gets good, right. doesn't it, by about the 80th season. Yeah, you just got to stick with it. <laughs> That's a reference <laughs> to a great sketch comedy show by Eliza Schlesinger. I love Eliza Schlesinger. It's on Netflix. If you haven't watched it, people, oh, get hairs. involved. I didn't, even, I didn't even do my hair. That's the beauty of recording from home. I know. Don't look at yourself. Look at me. Um, hi, Evie. Hi. I don't know what episode this is, and it doesn't matter anymore. We're not going to number our episodes anymore, but I can say this. What? It is the 8th, 8th, 2020. It is 8th, 2020. What? Today, it's Sissy it's and Ben's birthday. birthday. And Beverly's birthday. It's their birthdays today. Who would have thought... That I ended up with two rescue dogs at two completely different times, two completely different ages, and they've got the same birthday. Different years, same birthday. That's amazing, isn't it? What are the chances? I know. The chances are one in a million, honestly, or more. I don't know. I'm not a mathematician, but freaky deaky. Well, look, happy birthday to Beverly and Sissy. No, they don't even know. That's the I weirdest know. thing. Did you get them a cake? Every day. Oh, I just got them some meat, so I will be making a meat cake. Good. <laughs> Normally I let Sissy smash a whole chook, but I've stopped doing that. Yeah, got it. Because she's on a diet. Um, um, so, yeah, I'll be making a meat know. cake and I will do a story about it and it will be – but it's so it's so hard because dogs never know it's their birthday. Every day is their birthday. And well, right. I gave them a treat this morning. I was like, oh, it's a birthday treat. And they're like, we get a treat every morning. Thanks. <laughs> same, same. For the other treat. Thanks for the same treat that we get every day. Oh, well, that's I keep special, saying happy birthday it? to them and they think it's, you know, we're going for another walk. <laughs> And, and Sissy is six. Sissy is six and Beverly is 14. 14. Mm. If I get yeah. another seven years out of Pete, mm. can I just tell mind. you, that would just be yes. the best. Oh, you would probably will. I reckon it's all about how what you feed them and how they live. Yeah, and Pete how gets fed they live for. Good. He, he does. Fed, he gets his, his own burger patties delivered to the front door. Mm. Like he's on bloody, getting your... he's on a bloody food, you know, like what do you call it, you know, subscription. I'm not even on yeah. a bloody food subscription, but he is. And I'm so on get... that subscription now too and I'm getting mine mm. on Monday. Are you getting yours on Monday? No, I had to pause one because I had too many. I've, I, I just, oh, I don't I know what I happened, but I was, 
I was over the top, so I had to pause. But um, yes, um, I'm not going to pause. You know what I'm going to do instead with the extras? Make what? make another cake out of it today. Great idea. I'm full of them. Great bloody idea, Evie. Guess what I did last night? Have you seen that show, The um, Life Drawing Live? Rove McManus does it. No, what channel is it on? It's on SBS. It it was on live, but I I watched the replay. I heard about um, that. It was so much fun. So you... You are in a class with like there was like Claudia Cavan, um, yeah, um, and I had cut people. I can't remember their names. I'm so sorry, but um, but and then the, the life drawer stands. The person stands there. Um, when you mm-hmm. when you did it live, you could go onto the SBS website and and get a still of the person. But I just took a photo of the person on the TV. And then I oh, and then I drew, and they set you all these challenges, and they're like, okay, you've got two minutes, just draw whatever you need, draw whatever you see, wow. and then and then they teach you about like negative space and like how Ooh. to draw, and my drawing amazing. improved over yeah. the time, yeah, and it was just what a, so. Oh, is good. it a series or is it just a one off? Well, I don't know. I think it was that was just a one-off, but then I think there's also a UK one which I'm going to do as well. And then there was well, that's probably um, where it's come from, isn't it? Yeah, but the and UK. then I was thinking, I'm just going to look online for some life drawing classes because what a great thing to do on You're your own. A couple of glasses of um, bloody last night I was drinking whiskey, and um, <laughs> away you go. Jesus. And did it get a little bit messier as you drank? No, I actually no. I got I didn't finish it. I got, kind of got halfway through, and I was like, I don't want to use my brain anymore. So, I I didn't finish the whole episode. I did th- four oh, drawings. I thought you meant you didn't finish the whole bottle of whiskey. Oh no, no. I just um, no, she, she drank that. I she no, just stopped I, the drawing. I stopped drawing and I and I kept watching Hannibal, which I'm I'm addicted to at the moment. Um, you are, and then and that was it. What about you? What did That's you do? Amazing. Oh, I um I drank half a bottle of red wine. Oh yeah, that was so beautiful. I got this sure, wine sent. Absolutely. Ahem. Okay, here I go. Ahem. Hang what? on. Let me just clear my. Gosh. Singing is harder than I thought. What is going on? Who are you talking to? Sing I am a wine, it says on my phone, and that's what she's replied with, Siri. And I didn't tell Siri to sing at all. What is that song, I am a wine? Is that even a song? (laughs) And then she started clearing her throat. Ahem, I'm not very good at singing. Siri, Get you're sing something you else. are neck level. Ask her to sing something else. Go. Siri, can you sing? Siri, can you sing anything? Sure, absolutely. Ahem. Okay, here I go. Ahem. Same thing. Hang on. Let me just clear my... Gosh, singing is harder than I thought. She just repeated herself. Ahem. Siri, I thought it was all so... Ahem. Ahem. Ahem, that's what we say. Do saying you know now Siri says from. to me? What? Yeah, ahem. 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 
Do you know what Siri says to me now when I ask for her? What? She goes, mm. Does it's she? It's very freaky because it's very oh. familiar. Wow. And it, it actually makes you look over your shoulder. Because mm. mm. she's normally and she goes, mm. Mm. Wow. So you drank half a bottle of wine. Yeah, and then I started to watch the new Stephen King movie, which was a sequel, is a sequel to The Shining. And once it started, it kind of was replicating the beginning of, of, of The Shining. And then and that reminded me how much I hated The Shining. So yeah. I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. So I turned it over and there was The Huntsman with uh, Chris Hemsworth. Oh, hello. So I goggle boxed it for everyone and people enjoyed it. Oh, did you? But I've I turned it off after a while because it, that yeah. was crap as well. Nice. And then I went to bed. Oh, that's good. I've been having really weird dreams lately, lucid, so weird, colourful so dreams, I. and I'm not sure if they're real or not. I wake up and I'm like, did I, did I go and put the bins out and talk to that person yeah. or was that a dream? Yeah. Same here. I'm having weird, weird dreams. Isn't it? I can it be ISO. I remembered every every detail of my dream this morning. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you try to remember mm. it. Sometimes you can't remember all of it, but I remembered every single detail. Um, I won't yeah, tell you what it was about because don't you don't like it. hearing about <laughs> this is something you no should one know does. about Evie. She she doesn't like if you say, Oh God, I had the most interesting dream last night. She's like, Yep, yeah, don't tell me. Don't want to no, know. No one wants to know. No one does. No, if, no. if they do, if they actually say they do, they're lying. No one wants yeah. to hear your dream. They they want to tell their dream. Everyone wants oh, to tell their dream, but yeah. no one wants to hear it. Do you remember the dream lady on Triple J? The um, you know no. the dream lady that used to she used to you used to call up and she would tell you your dreams, your what your I dreams were I about. I think I do remember that. Yeah, yeah I, I think I do remember that. One. In the nineties. So I'm going to be telling you um, all about an amazing woman today, yes. something different for the podcast, which is, um, I don't know if we even said that this is Chick's Tree and we tell you all about Chick's in history. Don't think we said yeah, that yes, yet. Yeah, and we do. Um, I think we knows by now yeah. what they're listening to. Do you want to tell me about a chick in the now? Yes. Do you want to give it a theme song? This way, chicky chicky now now chicky chicky now now chicky. Oh, that's a very good one. Thanks, I liked it. I liked yeah, it, and it kind of goes with the uh, sassy chick I'm about to tell you about. Okay, I don't know if you know this woman, she's Australian, she lives in Melbourne. Her name is Megan Luscombe. You introduced me to Megan Luscombe, she, she's good. She, she is, is a life good. and relationship coach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And on her bio, she says, I help people set boundaries, build confidence, communicate better, manage anxiety, give less fucks and thrive in love. I mean, that in itself is worth following for. She has a podcast called Real Talk with Megan Luscombe, which is brilliant. Oh, if you're into she podcasts. Had a podcast. I've, I've watched her do oh. the, the Bachelor in Paradise recaps, which are so how good are they? Oh, amazing. Yeah. You don't even need to watch The Bachelors anymore. You just need to watch the punky recaps <laughs> with Surf Dog Bachelor and yes. Megan Luscombe's 
um, interpretation of what they're really saying and doing and feeling and acting like and why you should or shouldn't do these mm. kind of behaviours. She it's called it out. Yeah, and she's good. Like she knows what she's talking about yeah. and she makes it very simple to understand and I agree with everything. I've started um, DMing her and she's just great. We just have a chat. We have a laugh. Mm. Yeah. She's got a great yeah. sense of humour. If you're not following her, start following her, Megan Luscombe underscore. Yeah, and check out her podcast. I will be doing that. I didn't realise she had yeah, a podcast. Yeah, you're going to love it. Awesome. That's the uh, um, chick in the now for this week. Chick in the now. Megan, we salute you. You're a chick in the now. Um, and, Annette, yeah. who have you got today as a chick in history? <laughs> Oh, uh, let me tell you today, I've got such an amazing story. Um, I, I'm i going to tell you all about an amazing Indigenous woman called Isabel Flick. Um, before I do, though, I just want to say that um, I did um, contact her granddaughter on Facebook. So I want to say thank you to Georgie for letting um, letting me tell this story and, um, you know, getting the family's blessing. It was super important that um, we did that. And, um, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, and that, you know, they were very excited for us to be talking about um, Isabel on the podcast today. Um, I um, just I used there's a book called Isabel Flick the many lives of an extraordinary aboriginal woman and it's written by Isabel and also by a woman called Heather Goodall um which I used as as my main source I actually um first did some uh research online um there's a couple of articles on the the conversation sbs.com has a good article and um of course our yeah. friends wikipedia um but I but I read the book yeah I, I I got the book and I just I could not put it down it is such an amazing story such a good read I recommend everyone go and get it on the lines you can't go to the shops well if you're in Melbourne you can't go to the shops but um get it get it get it um so can you download it oh old, yeah you can I download stuff. yeah I, I got the Kindle it. I did, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Isabel Ann Flick was born in 1928 in Gundawindi, Queensland. She was a, a Gamilaray and Begamble woman. I hope I've pronounced that right. Uh, and she was one of eight children and grew up in a town, grew up in the town of Colerenambrai in northwestern New Colerenum? South Wales. Colerenambrai. Say it again. Colerenambrai. Ren, Colorenabri, Colorenabri. It's a hard. Yeah, I had to really practice um, just learning yeah. how to say that word. Um, so her it's not father, just boy, is it? Pardon? Sorry, it's not just boy boy, is it? Not oh, as easy as boy boy. Not just boy boy. That's right. Um, so her father, Mick Flick joined the army in 1914 and although he was technically too young to join, he was only about 15 at the time, um, he was able to lie about his age, which a lot of young boys did. Um, they did. 
all the young Indigenous boys because at the time they didn't have birth certificates. So they could go in and just say that, you know, whatever age they were. Um, and this is important later on in the story, um, you know, why I'm kind of mentioning this now. But um, it, and, and then he had about six weeks of training and then he was sent off to st- serve on the Western Front. Um, he survived the war after being injured twice and um, upon his return home he met Isabel's mum, Celia, and they got married. Um, the Flick family moved around a lot um, and and they did that as a way of keeping away from the system um, that was being imposed by the government in Australia at that time. So like mm. most Aboriginal families, um, Isabel's parents feared that their children were going to be taken away from them. So they moved around oh a lot. Why yeah. you in that way? I know. fear over you. Oh, you're oh. going to say that so oh, many yeah. times during this story, let me tell oh. you. <laughs> Um, so in 1934, when Isabel was about six, her family uh, eventually settled in what was um, known as the Old Camp, um, and it was uh, an Aboriginal camp that was situated on a lagoon, which was just east of Coloran and Bryce. So they were just outside of the town, um, only I think a block or so away from the local hospital. Um, mm-hmm. But they, but they weren't sort of you know part of the town. They were sort of considered out um, outside of the town. So um, the old camp consisted of six different Indigenous families at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. The houses were very simple, built of timber frames, and they used to flatten kerosene tins to make the roof um, and the walls of the the home. So um, this is what I, you know, found interesting that they would fill the tins up with water, um, they would boil them and the seams would burst and then they would hammer the um, tins flat. And use wow. them to build houses. Yeah. So Isabel remembers That's this amazing. time, isn't it? So Isabel remembers this time at the camp quite fondly. Um, and she recalls she'd hold, um, they would hold dances, they would play games, and they would um, have water fights. And one of the highlights was on Mondays, all of the women and the children would go down to the river for wash days um, and they would head out at sunrise and return at sundown um, and the kids would um, swim while the adults washed all of the pots and pans and the clothes um, and the river at the time served a number of purposes uh, and there were special allocated areas, um, one for washing in, one for swimming in and one for um, fishing in and then and even a spot where they would only take drinking water um and that was known as the dipping place so i'm not entirely sure how they would section off those areas in the river i've read a book um black emu have you heard of that book the um yeah yeah, that's that um that man indigenous man that bolt andrew bolt thinks is a farce right right does he because he's white looking Right. So he mustn't be Indigenous. Right. So I did read in that book a while ago that they um, there was some form of kind of irrigation system that they used to create building like with um, stones and rocks within the river. So I'm thinking maybe that's, you know, if you know, let us know because I would love to, um, I'd love to know. Um, so during this time, Isabel says that she had a feeling of safety and um, to live in a society like that was a wonderful time and it was only later on that she realised just how segregated um, they were. Um, I can, do you know what, I can kind of relate to that. I know that, um, you know, we we mentioned, I think when I was talking about Parramatta Leagues Club, 
babes, growing mm-hmm. up out west. And um, I didn't know I was a Westie until I was mm-hmm. told I was one. Told, yeah. I think so that's when I, with everything though. You don't know you're a, a, a snob until you're told, you know, <laughs> or you're a bugger. Yeah. Or you wouldn't know you're any different I, to anyone. I had no, I had no idea. Like where I lived was, a, you know, a really um, low socioeconomic um, area, and that um, yeah, you know, yeah. I grew up in around a lot of housing commission areas, and you know, some of my best friends were, and we called them housos, like we did, and they mm-hmm. called themselves housos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, you live in your own little kind of cocooned protected world until you sort of all these things start presenting themselves to you and you start thinking oh hang on there's I'm I'm a little bit different and people are telling me that I'm a certain way but I don't feel like that anyway um yeah but that's where um they say that's where you know everything comes from including mm -hmm. racism you have to be taught to dislike someone because they're different to you Exactly. You don't. You're not inherently born born like that. Do, like, and we, we've all proved proven it. Yeah. That you don't know that you're any different to anyone until someone tells you. Tells you. Yeah. Yeah. So as Isabel gets a bit older, there's quite a few things that she starts to notice in regards to this segregation. So things like they weren't allowed to sit in specific areas at the picture theatre, they weren't allowed to be served at specific places. Uh, But the one thing that really caused the most frustration for Isabel was not being able to go to school. Um, She was a keen learner and... um, but at the time, Indigenous children were forbidden to attend the local school. So although children were not able to attend the school um, in the town, um, this didn't stop them from learning. And it was Isabel's sister-in-law who decides that she's going to build a correspondence school um, and she's going to run it at the camp for the children of the camp. So... Um, mm-hmm. So they, so they, you know, they are kind of um, able to kind of get a little bit of uh, education uh, that way. But um, yeah, not not attend the local school. Thanks very much. Uh, um, yeah. So in 1938, when Isabel is just 10 years old, her mum gets really sick. Uh, so along with her and her cousins, um, she's moved away from her parents to live with their grandmother at. Uh, Tamila Aboriginal Mission in inland New South Wales. So as you can imagine for this, um, for Isabel, this place feels like a refugee camp. Um, everything is controlled. They need permission to do everything. Um, on Mondays and Wednesdays, the matron who is the wife of the manager would come around and do inspections and the children are just terrified of this woman. Um, one day, um, Isabel hears the matron tell Isabel's grandmother that she shouldn't be speaking in that lingo uh, when she heard her talking in her um, Indigenous language. And she, language. Told, mm-hmm, and she was told, you are not allowed to talk in that stupid lingo. You are done with that now. You have to be like a white person. So Isabel's parents um, would often come for a visit but not very often Um, and when they did come they were allowed to stay for just one hour and um, she was only ever allowed to have one visitor at a time. So although the camp wasn't a very nice. Yeah. It's still the same. We still have these camps. Refugee camps. This is awful. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, although, so although the camp wasn't a very nice place, this is where Isabel uh, received most of her schooling. Um, the manager of the camp sets up a school um, and guess what they learn about? White things. Captain Cook and how oh. brave he was. Oh. Nothing about and how there was no their culture. How the land was not occupied when they mm-hmm. arrived and all those kind of awful white things. Mm-hmm. So Isabel stays at the uh, Tumila Mission, um, I hope I'm saying that right, until she's 14 uh, and returns to her family in Colorado in 1942. So she's there for four years um, and such an impressionable mm-hmm impressionable age you know that 10 to 14 year old sort of you're really sort of starting to discover yourself and um you know what kind of how the world works um so you can just imagine can I just can I just interrupt for one second because it's just made me think of something that um I'll forget by the end of this story to tell you which um something that Dermot Brereton told us in the jungle when we were on I'm a celebrity mm, he mm-hmm. has one of his favorite books I can't remember what it's called um but he said it's about this young boy in America a native Indian native American sorry okay. native American and how he was taken and put into a very similar situation and you know um taught white things and everything and he said there was this one part of the book that really stuck out to him and it was such a great story the way he told it to us because he mm. said that the teacher was teaching um just teaching something in the class and there's a big painting on the wall of um two horses yep. by a river and yep. the boy noticed it and noticed that what both the horses were doing and were about to do and what they what sex they were and that they were about to mate and it was he looked at the trees around and knew what time of the year it was so that meant there were certain things going to happen and he started to explain the picture and he got in so much trouble because of the sex talk and he was you know um yeah it was just such a heartbreaking tiny little tale of how many times that must have happened to so many um indigenous people around the world when they were being whitewashed trying to be whitewashed yeah and brainwashed into thinking a certain way and how much it breaks my heart to think how much we can learn Uh, just from that little boy knowing so much about the land yeah i was he got told it was wrong the knowledge, the knowledge, mm. the knowledge that 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 you know we can tap into, we can still tap into. Um, it's not like not too late, not too late. True. Um, but it just made so, me think of that. So yeah, so, yeah. No, that that's no, no. That's inter- really interesting. Um, so Isabel returns um, back to Colerain and Bry. It's now 1942 and while she's away, her sister-in-law, who's also a bloody awesome chickstery, chicken history herself, um, keeps teaching the local Indigenous children um, and fighting for them to be able to attend school. Um, in 1941, the decision is finally made to allow Aboriginal children to attend school in the first state government what, yeah. trial of assimilation, 1941. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's late, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I mean it was called the first state government trial of assimilation. 
Like animals, like mm-hmm. experiment. Yeah, so this move sees um, the white parents go on strike um, at the school. They take their children out of the school. They protest. Um, so a compromise is made and an annex is built for the Aboriginal children. Uh, they're not allowed to use the piano or the tea rooms at the school and they have to carry all of their furniture for the classroom up to the annex and back each day themselves. Uh, It wouldn't be another six years after continuous lobbying um, that Aboriginal children are finally allowed to be integrated into the school. So this is the start of something beginning to stir in Isabel and um, she's beginning to realise, you know, it's quite obvious now that Aboriginal people are being treated differently and that they have limited rights. So she starts to become quite conscious about what's happening around her and her dad actually starts to also point a lot of things out or she starts to notice a lot of things kind of that are happening, um, you know, to her father, especially around um, the RSL club that's built in 1947. Um, He's not allowed to be served at the bar. He has to have a beer handed to him through a window. No. A retired yep. servicemen's league. A retired where service. Retired servicemen. Yep. Yeah. He he's is not allowed to for the country and he's not allowed to buy yep. his own beer. No. He has to be – well, he's not allowed to go into the bar. He has to be have the, the beer handed right. to him through a window. So he basically tells them to stuff it. He says, if I'm good enough yeah. to fight for this yep. country, then I'm good enough to have a drink in your shitty club. Um, so she sort of starts learning this – you know, this kind of um, attitude, you know, towards what's kind of happening. And she starts to get a bit of sass, which I love. Um, She also, though, starts to experience racism firsthand as well. And she tells a story about how she's uh, refused service in a cafe. Um, And that's actually quite a uh, an amazing story. She she meets a, a group of um, white children and they say to her, come into this cafe and um, have lunch with us. And she's like, no, 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 like I can't, I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to. And they convince her to come in. I think it's her and her cousin. Um, and I'm just remembering this from the book. So sorry if I do get some of these details wrong, but she goes um, into the cafe. And so there's a bunch of kids and they sit down and the, the white kids order a bunch of stuff and then they say um, the server refused to take Isabel and her cousin's order and they're told that they don't serve people of her kind um, in the um, in the cafe. So she, Isabel and her cousin leave and they go outside. The white kids, however, um, sit there and they order up all this food and um, all this food comes to the table and they sit there and they say, if our friends can't be served, then we're not going to eat any of this food. Um, and they basically just walk out and leave all the food sitting on the table and um, as, a, as a, little, a little tiny protest, you know, for, for the kids at the time to say, well, you know, suck in. You know, we're not going to even pay for this food if you won't serve our, serve our friends. Um, in 1949... Little from little people, I love it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in 1949, Isabel is 20. She gives birth to a baby boy uh, and who she names Ben um, and she's a single mum and... Um, but Ben is raised with the help of her father um, and also with the members of the camp. So... Um, 
which was quite common, you know, back then, the whole it takes a village. It's um, absolutely, it a yeah, absolutely what went. Where yeah. you should raise children is, I mean, not should you, let's not tell people how to raise children, but it is a good way. It is a good way. Um, but at the time, the camp still doesn't have running water, although remember it's only a few blocks away from the hospital. Um, Isabel also remembers uh, this time, during this time, there's lots of increased police presence throughout the camp and she remembers that the police would patrol three or four times a day um, and she's, this is where she really starts to learn that to get anything done, you have to be willing to have confrontations and um, because mm-hmm. she learns, she sees it, she sees it happening to, you know, all of the people around her within her, her community and the police would basically, you know, rush through the door um, and start yelling and screaming and asking questions and um, make everyone in the house have to kind of confront them in quite a scary, mm-hmm. um, unnecessary kind of way. Um In 1952, Isabel begins a relationship with Aubrey and um, their first child is born in 1954 and over the years she'll go on to have four more children with Aubrey. Um, And so as her family starts to grow, Isabel really starts to focus on how she can just get basic access to services for her children, um, such as medical care, and she starts... um, really taking a focus on how um, the Aboriginal people are being treated in the local hospital, especially women. Um, the hospital is um, the hospital operates a separate and distant ward specifically for Aboriginal patients and all of the equipment is labelled with the medical term segregation. This ward was in fact a small weatherboard shed at the bottom of the hospital yard um, across from the kitchen building. Um, There was a pathway that joined this shed to the main hospital. Um, Babies were born in the Aboriginal ward and then they would be taken to the main hospital nursery. Um, And then they were brought to their mothers across the open garden path each uh, feeding time and they were returned back to the nursery. So the mothers had to come out of the segregated ward to feed their own babies. Um, So Isabel starts to stand up for herself. She actually has to go to the hospital herself and she starts to, she also starts to see this um, racism happening. And so she starts speaking out and she starts talking to the staff at the hospital and, um, and she really starts to sort of calling people out. Um, and a lot of the time um, her sort of call-outs go unheard, although there are a few people in the community who, who do start to listen to her. One of her first experiences of speaking out publicly, which I love, is um, at the local picture show, um, the Picture Theatre. It's 1961 at this time Aboriginal people are typically roped off in an area at the front of the screen and this was known as the colour bar and it was very very popular not just in Colorenumbri but in um, you know in a lot of places throughout Australia but Isabel wasn't having it I'm going to read you this next bit it's taken from the book and it's in her own words um, so Isabel says, uh, she said, and I said to this old fella at the ticket box, I want you to come and fix this. Take these ropes off. Who do you think we are? Our money is as good as anyone else's and we want to sit where we want to sit. 
I kept standing there in front of the ticket office and by then my sister-in-law was there too, the two of us making trouble. And my poor little heart, I don't know how it stayed in my chest, but it did. And then someone said, good on you, Isabel. It's about time that happened. The manager could see that I was just going to stand there and keep standing there. Sometimes I think if I had waited just a little bit longer, sorry, sometimes I think if I think if he had waited just a little bit longer, I'd have gone away. But then he finally said, oh, all right, you can sit anywhere then. And that's what happened. Wow. So from then on, Aboriginal people were allowed to sit wherever they wanted in that picture theatre. And because she sort of started seeing that, you know, change was possible, um, she starts to really take notice about what's happening in the Australian um, political scene. And at the time, um, Aboriginal people, um, in particular in 1961, the federal electoral laws change and they allow Aboriginal people to vote um, in the national elections. Right. Uh, in 1965, the Freedom Ride comes through Colorado and Bry. Now, I didn't know about the Freedom Ride and I hadn't heard about the Freedom Ride. Mm -hmm. Um, I watched a really cool little documentary on YouTube about it. Um, But the Freedom Ride, do you know about the Freedom Ride? No, I don't don't know. Do I? Okay. You might. Let me tell you. I clearly don't. Let me tell you all about it. You clearly don't. You're you're pretending to, but you don't. well, I must have, it sounds like something in America. Yeah. Is it well, American? Well, yeah. it was inspired I just feel like by. I've the, heard of it, but I don't know a lot about it. Yeah. So it was actually inspired by the Freedom Riders of the American Civil Rights Movement. Um, right. And it was students from the University of Sydney. Um, they formed a group called the Student Action for Aborigines. It was led by Charles Perkins. Mm who was the first Indigenous Australian to graduate with a tertiary education. Um, And they travelled to New South Wales country towns um, on what some of them considered a fact-finding mission. So they kind of wanted to see what was happening in these small towns. Um, The students protested, picketed and faced violence and they were raising the issues of Indigenous rights. They commonly stood protesting for hours at segregated areas such as pools, parks and uh, pubs, which raised uh, um, mixed reception in these country towns, as you can imagine. There's a really cool, I think it might be a um, an NITV uh, um, video on YouTube and they have, they have, they re-do uh, the Freedom Ride with the original university students who are now like in their oh, 70s. Really? Yeah, and they they oh, have them go, go back to the same towns and and tell their stories about you know what happened and um, you know there's there's footage of um, Charles Perkins with a bunch of um, Indigenous children trying to get them access to the um, the pool the local pool um, and they're told to you know go away and they they show real footage of you know of the time as well so yeah they're told to go away and um, that the the children aren't allowed to um, to visit the to visit the pool. Just heartbreaking. Um, 
so while this was happening and, you know, this, this happened and it came through Coloranumbri, um, Isabel saw this and she started to think about what the people on the bus were saying and fighting for. And it actually made her really sad that there were other people, um, white people, who were fighting the fight on her behalf. And this is when she thought, I really need to start speaking up and having a voice in regards to Aboriginal Aboriginal issues that were happening on her own doorstep. So as a result of the Freedom Ride, um, a parliamentary committee came comes to uh, Coloranumbri and this is the perfect opportunity for Isabel to start to meet with politicians. Um, she's nervous. She hasn't ever spoken to anyone official. She's never spoken to an official politician before, um, but she has the backing of her good friend, Henry Denya, um, and he encourages her to speak up and to become an active member in the community. So she does just that. She starts um, attending meetings with Henry. He says, come and, you know, come to these these meetings with me. He's a lot of um, He's a member of a lot of different associations and in particular he says that she should come and um, join him at the Royal Far West meeting. Do you know the Royal Far West? Yeah. I do. My mum worked there. My mum used to work at the Royal Far West. Yeah. So it, it was um, – it was offer... like, the sale of the century, Tony Barber. Yeah. Yeah, well, mum and, mum and his wife used to work together in oh. the office. Oh, there you go. Um, so so they bring Far, the kids in from the country, they bring, don't they? Yeah. They, Royal Far West yeah. offers accommodation for country kids um, who need to come into mm-hmm. town for medical treatments. But it was Isabel who put the spotlight on this service being available to Aboriginal children. So um, Aboriginal children mm-hmm. weren't considered before um, Isabel said, mm-hmm. what about the Indigenous kids? Mm, what about us? Exactly. Um So she continues on this path of speaking out, standing up for Aboriginal rights, um, and she's um, really starting to form allies with other, um, you know, non-Indigenous people within the community. And one of her greatest skills was that she was a people person and she really knew how to work alongside other people, regardless of race and who they are and their background, to get things done. So... um, Paul, there's a guy called Paul. He was a third-year medical student um, and later became friends with um, Isabel when she was working at the Prince Alfred. Says this about her in the book, which I love. I'm going to read it out because it kind of sums up um, just what she was like. So um, he says, what I did begin to see was a talent of Isabel's that I was to see many times in her career. This was the ability to utilise white support very astutely. She was aware of the potential value of white supporters as well as their hazards. I also think she was someone in whom the politics and social justice of situations was really the dominant issue. And so this allowed her to form friendships with white supporters, which few other Aboriginal leaders were able to do. So in 1969, cotton production is booming in Australia, um, especially in that area, and um, a lot of Aboriginal people are going to get work on the cotton fields. So So Isabel is keen to understand how the workers are being treated. Of course she is because she's a bloody legend. And um, much to her um, dismay but not surprise, um, she cannot believe that um, the way the workers are being treated, the working conditions, they're being paid just $1 an hour. Um, so she starts the very early beginnings of a movement um, to try to get 
better working conditions um, alongside her trusty allies. So she calls in all the people that she knows um, and she really um, starts to um, try to get fairer work conditions and better pay. So she even starts travelling to Sydney and attending meetings basically with anyone that will listen. So she she's just this woman from this small town who who ends up, you know, sometimes they would hitchhike into Sydney. They would she whoever was going to Sydney or she could get a lift to Sydney, she would jump in their cars and she would start going and meeting with different unions and different foundations and um, start really trying to lobby for better work conditions and better pay. So if it wasn't for Isabel, this movement would not have been started and and it wouldn't have happened. Um, She's She's an original gangster. She is. Um, She also (laughs) starts. hustling. I love it. Hustling. I know. Um, And can you imagine just like being an Indigenous woman coming from a small, tiny community, travelling to mm. Sydney and meeting these men in these unions, these building unions and, you know, like and go, so walking up, having these meetings and, and, and trying to put forward your case. Like it's absolutely mm. amazing that she, that she was doing this. Um, she also starts to get involved in Aboriginal land rights and she starts to work out ways that she can get land rights legislation into parliament. Um, she starts, again, meeting with politicians and she also starts visiting different communities outside of her own to encourage them to start speaking up as well. So she's like, if we all start speaking up, something will um will get done. So she moves the family to Sydney so she can get more involved in Aboriginal activist groups. Um, She gets involved in the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs, South Sydney Community Aid and also the Aboriginal Tent Embassy and she goes on to get a job working at the Royal Prince Alfred in Sydney. In 1972, the Whitlam Labor government comes into power and for the first time promises substantial funding to Aboriginal community bodies. So this is awesome news for um, Aboriginal people at that time, but funds can only be handed over to uh, community bodies which are legally set up to receive government money. So there, even though there is a lot of community bodies that are set up, but they're not set up um, legitimately. So Isabel gets to work. And so for the next few years, she works with many organisations to get them set up as real organisations so that they can start receiving funds. The learning demands were enormous. She's um, Not only does she have to start to develop political and professional strategies for running these services, she also has to learn on the job. She learns as she goes. Um, She learns the rules of company procedures, responsibilities of the company directors, rules of formal meeting processes. Um, She gets all across the financial dealings um, with major government departments and like this is just such a huge achievement for Isabel given that her schooling was so limited. So she is just like faking it till she makes it basically um, but does it. And a lot of the organisations that she helps set up um, to receive funds still exist today. Wow. Um, 
So um, she ends up resigning from the Royal Prince Alfred and she becomes a health worker at the Aboriginal Health Unit in the New South Wales Department of Health. And she also increases her focus on the uh, on Aboriginal land rights and also supporting the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Momentum for the land rights campaign starts to build and um, although it's severely watered down, the Land Rights Act is eventually passed in 1976. And almost immediately, Aboriginal people across the country begin to pressure their state governments for land rights as well. So um, Isabel's involvement um, increases as the land issues begin to um, gain more prominence. And she becomes one of the important community figures involved in organising the 1977 Land Rights Conference. This was the first time in decades that Aboriginal people had come together to talk about their goals for the land in many different regions of the state. So even though, and this is really interesting, even though that Land Rights Act was passed in 76, they didn't ask any of the Aboriginal people, um, you know, what their goals were for the land, what they wanted to do with their land. They just basically, um, you know, said that, yep, yeah, okay, you guys can work with us to, to you know, to, to use the land, but then we're not going to give it, to, we're not going to give it back to you. We're not, you know, officially saying that it's yours and you can do what you want with it. We'll still do what we want with it, but... Um, you know, going to appease you on the well, yeah, we'll just pop your name on on something, you know, and so that'll <sighs> that'll make you happy. Um, so lip service. Yeah, so Isabel attends this um, 1977 Land Rights Conference and she, um, you know, like always, has her voice heard because she's a bloody legend. Uh, in, nine, uh, in, yeah, in 1978, she returns back to Coloranambrai and she brings back with her all of the stuff that she's learnt during her time in Sydney and um, she tirelessly continues to lobby for fairness and equality um, within her local town of Coloranambrai. Um, she's looking for fairer systems of housing, health and education and she goes about setting up her own housing company in Coloranambrai. So um, Coloranambrai at the time um, is life's pretty tough. There's less employment than ever before um, and there's also this tense undercurrent of anxiety um, and even though there's sort of newer organisations coming up um, and, you know, there is hopes for funding um, in the community programs, there's still a lot of um, uh, alcohol abuse and more young people and women are drinking in the town uh, and the burden of care for grandchildren fell onto the grandmothers um, ar of around Isabel's age. Um, one of her most notable achievements in lobbying in her hometown is when her housing company puts in a submission to upgrade the three-kilometre track that leads to the Aboriginal cemetery. So um, they had their... Um, the Aboriginal people had their own cemetery, um, which they used to uh, burn glass and make these amazing kind of glass um, sculptures on top of the graves, and um, just beautiful. And there's a you know there's a whole process around how um, the, it's sort of passed down how you kind of do this process of burning this glass, which is all in the book. It's fascinating. Um, but the road to the um, cemetery was a dirt road. So if someone had passed away and they had had a lot of rain during that time, they um, it would limit them being able to get to the cemetery and to bury the, um, their loved ones. So sometimes they would have to pause 
um, funerals, they would have to pause burials or they would they would actually have to try and make um, – you know they couldn't drive cars out to out to this three kilometer track, so they'd have to walk sometimes um, to to bury their loved ones. Um, so when a friend dies suddenly in 1980 and heavy rains delay the process of grave digging um, and of holding the funeral, Isabel is pushed to formulate a unique strategy. She goes around and visits everybody that she knows in town, and she gets them all to agree that they're all going to refuse any kind of funding whatsoever until they get the road fixed. So she keeps up the protests for two rounds of meetings and um, they basically go to the meetings where, you know, the government's willing to give them money and they're like, no, we don't want it. We don't want your money. We don't want your help. Not until you fix this road um, for our cemetery. And eventually they relent and a new road is built. Um, And it's now known as Bell's Way after Isabel. So Isabel had achieved a first step towards bringing the cemetery back into Aboriginal ownership uh, when in 1982, so remember the the Land Rights Act had been passed but they still didn't really own anything. Um, And so she achieves the first step in bringing the cemetery back into Aboriginal ownership when in 1982, um, acting with the New South Wales Lands Trust, she reaches an agreement which protects the cemetery lands and guarantees Aboriginal people access. Um, The Land Rights Act in the following year seemed to offer a way to achieve greater security over the cemetery by bringing the actual title of the land back into Aboriginal hands. So on the same day that the cemetery road is declared open, um, in August 1983, Isabel announces her formal retirement and um, she said that she's happy to keep, um, you know, being an occasional elder statesperson, but she doesn't want to be a day-to-day leader anymore. Um, even though um, throughout the 1980s and early 1990s, she continues to fight for Aboriginal people and Aboriginal land rights. Um, she's an active advisor on the Interim Land Council and she continues to encourage Colorado people to get to know the Land Rights Act and see how they can use it for their own benefit. Um, Her contributions to Coloran and Bry and the wider Aboriginal community were recognised in 1986 with a Medal of the Order of Australia, an honour which she was just quietly proud of. And I love this Mm -hmm. is is hilarious where she says in the book, she she loves the fact that now – Getting that award allowed her a sense of justification after all these years of battling with local authorities Um, and even though she was often labelled a troublemaker, she was finally being acknowledged as a a valued contribution to the community. She could now sign her most challenging letters um, that she was sending, still sending to authorities with Isabel Flick OAM, yet she never took it too seriously. Whenever anyone asked her what OAM stood for, she would laugh and say, oh, that stands for Old Aboriginal Mole. (laughs) Oh, she is sass. I love it. So um, she does return to Sydney later on uh, for a short stint where she she teaches Aboriginal history um, at Tran... Tranby Cooperative Aboriginal College in Glebe. It's actually one of the first organisations that she helped set up back in the late 70s when she was in Sydney um, 
for that first time. In her final years, Isabel develops lung cancer and sadly passes away on the 16th of February 2000. Um, but her legacy continues on and um, she, you know, stories like this and being able to tell her stories still keep her legacy alive. Um Go out and get the book. It's such an amazing read about, you know, a true hero who um, just relentlessly, you know, fought for what was right and um, her dedication in her book, which is amazing. I'm just going to read this out to you. It says um, she dedicates the book to her six children, Ben, Larry, Brenda, Tony, Amy and Aubrey. And she writes, who were denied full commitment from me as a mother, as I was always working, trying to provide just a little extra for them. Mm. Isabel and Flick, we salute you. Salute you. You are a chick in history, a good one. That's a great story. Isn't it? And um, Yeah, that was a really good find, Isabel. Yeah, flick. Yeah, I think yeah, people can go and read her book in her own words. I'm so glad that she wrote a book. Mm. She 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 um, what do you call it when you talk it when you you um, there's recording of it. Yeah, like she yeah, she, she did it in her voice. Yeah, so she, so oh, a lot of it is written like where she's the the um the co-author has gotten her to actually reminisce and to think about her childhood and her memories so she just talks and you know everything kind of comes back but the her co-author has actually written written the book um with her but it's all her memories and all of the things she remembers amazing stories you know she's a she's such a good storyteller um I would have loved to you know have met her she sounds like she is a funny sassy woman you know who just had so she's so brave I just I still cannot believe that you know she just would I mean I I think I would be nervous to even go and meet with industry bodies you know from travel to you know the CBD and have a meeting with with an industry body about something when you know trying to fight for something it just to have that much to be that brave and to also yeah. expect that people are probably going to shut the door in your face and tell you to go away and not listen to you, yeah. but to still have the tenacity to do that is just incredible. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, amazing. That's great. Good on you. Good on her. And thank her family. Thank you to her family, beautiful family, for giving us permission to, to tell that story. I hope yeah. more people um, hear about Isabel because it, yes. what a – a great Australian to um, have in history, in our history books. Yeah, absolutely. Teach that in school. Look at you. You've got to the end. So if you're still listening, I'm just going to give you a few little credity bits. Executive producers of this podcast is me, Evie Jones, and, of course, Annie Potatoes. But we've also got Sam Peterson. He's our producer, our editor, our wine boy, our whipping boy. He does everything. And he's also got a great podcast called Confessions of the Idiots. You know, if you all listen to us, we appreciate you. Follow us on Instagram at chickstreet underscore podcast. And you can email us at mychickstreet at gmail.com. <laughs>